Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Happy New Year to everyone. I'm excited about this year. I've got a lot of great episodes coming up and a few events to tell you about at the end of this podcast, so please stick around. This year, I'm focusing on conversations. Of course, that's what you get in every episode here, but I want to encourage you to think about the conversations you are having at work and maybe more importantly, the ones that are missing. And what I mean by that is instead of sending a text or an email, try picking up the phone and see what happens, what kind of difference that makes because your voice carries so much more meaning and that can make a big difference in how you work with other people and how you communicate your ideas. And I think that's really, really important. And that's going to be a theme with me all year long. Now, let's jump into my conversation with Tamson Webster about the red thread. We talked about understanding your own brand better so you can communicate that in a way that truly differentiates your company from your competitors. My guest today is the founder and CEO of Strategic Speaking. She's also an executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, and today she's an idea whisperer and message strategist. Tamson Webster, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. This will be fun. We were introduced to each other by our mutual friend, Hamid Ghanadon, who is likely to be a mutual friend of everybody who's listening to this podcast. Right? I know. <laughs> I think everybody knows and loves Hamid. Yeah. So we were talking a few weeks back and he said, I don't know if you're looking for guests, but you might want to consider Tamson. I said, of course, yes. And um, so I'm definitely interested in messaging strategies. And today we're going to talk about messaging for companies as part of their brand. Hmm. But to get us started, because I think your background is interesting and relevant to kind of put some context around this for the audience. Tell us a little bit about what you did at the Boston Conservatory and Harvard Medical School. That will put a frame on this thing, I think. Right. And the first question most people have is, how do you go from one to the other? Um, so <laughs> so I was at Boston uh, Conservatory for about four and a half years. And there I was in charge of all marketing communications and strategy. And for us at that time, that meant everything from fundraising communication strategy to recruitment to performance uh, and the overall brand of the conservatory, the organization. And in Boston, we had a bit more of a challenge in that branding than many other cities would present because Boston, as many people know, is rich with academic institutions. It's also rich with music in, uh, institutions as well, including another conservatory in the same city. And so one of my biggest challenges and, and uh, one of the things that I was most excited about taking on was how do we find a place and a meaning for the Boston Conservatory in this already rich and crowded uh, environment? And so... We took a really interesting and pretty, I would say, non-traditional approach. I think a lot of times when people go into a branding process, they say you should do all the research and all the gathering first before you ever come up with something like a logo or graphic identity. And actually what I ended up doing was using the graphic identity as a way to make those conversations about the brand and what it stood for much easier. So we could talk more about that, but that was a 
that was a fun piece. And once I was, uh, at, we had become successful with really establishing a, a different perspective for the conservatory. Um, after we switched the messaging in the first year alone, uh, we we raised fund fundraising went up by about seventy five percent, if I remember correctly. Um, we, there was a, a big bump in admissions, a big bump in in performance attendance. All of that went up, and so once. We'd figured out, and that was on its way. I was starting to look for well, what would be another similarly difficult challenge, and I landed at the Harvard Medical School, where my job was fundraising communications strategy specifically. And this is, you know, we I can sum up the difficulty and the challenge in kind of one sentence: is that I had to help fundraisers convince people that Harvard needed money. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And so, you know, which is, which was a challenge. And, uh, but in the process of figuring that out, uh, first thing I did was to make sure that the need piece came completely out of the conversation. Uh, people don't give money to Harvard because Harvard needs it. Uh, the, the real, the real truth of the matter is, is that because Harvard has so much money, when you give to Harvard, it's able to get more quickly to the things that you're trying to give money to. And, that was an important piece of our messaging. But another important piece of our messaging was helping people who were not scientists, not researchers, not medical professionals, understand the important work in fundamental basic science that the medical school is really all about. And so uh, I like to joke that I got a doctorate while I was there, E-T-T-E, um, by spending most of my first year in interviewing a significant portion of the faculty just understanding what it is that they did so that I could translate that to a bigger audience. Nice. Let's let's talk about branding. And I, I love that background. So you had some challenges at um, Boston Conservatory. And then, of course, the obvious challenge of convincing people that Harvard needs money, but actually it's it's different than that. And and if I remember both of those conversations from your interview with Srini Rao on The Unmistakable Creative... It, they were sort of a repositioning exercise uh, around the brand. Is that a fair way to put it? Um, or- uh, and it definitely was the case uh, for the Boston Conservatory. I think the Boston Conservatory spent a lot of its time tr- trying to be something it wasn't. And that, that specifically was the New England Conservatory, the other conservatory. Um, you know, it was, it really wanted to go out there as this very serious, you know, we're serious, we're serious performers, except for the problem was that as talented, I mean, the, the talent there was just amazing, but these were, it's not that they weren't serious, but there was just a, a much you know, fundamentally different way of seeing the world that was part of what drew people to the Boston Conservatory. And, and so the exercise was much more about bringing that out rather than really repositioning. I think positioning and oftentimes even branding ends up being unintentionally a very superficial exercise because it's aspirational. We, we do it based on what we want people to think, how we wish people saw us. And my experience over now 20 plus years of helping organizations do this is that, that the real answer lies in understanding how to close, not the gap between how you want to be seen and how you are seen, but how you close the gap internally first between who you already are and how you see yourselves. That's the big shift. And so 
for the conservatory, that that was that was clearly an an exercise in that. And at the at the medical school, it, it was a similar exercise, but it was less about how we represented the medical school overall, and much more in this case, a much more tactical flip in how. I was working with the fundraisers to talk differently about what the opportunities were. And so it's much more akin, think of it for for all your listeners that have a sales team. It was really the difference between working on a marketing message, which was the case at the Boston Conservatory, versus a sales message, which fundraising ultimately is very analogous to sales messaging. Um, and so what we were really doing was working to reposition in the fundraisers' minds this different approach that that meant that it moving them from trying to take a need based approach to a donor goal based approach. In other words, what was the donor trying to do globally with with what what the gift was? Why why would they give money in the first place? Um, and because you know, yeah, of course, sometimes it's so they can put a name on a building, but ultimately, it's like, well, but but why and. I I was really trying to work with the fundraisers to get a point where that's what they were asking so that they could they could broaden those conversations beyond just hey we've got an opportunity if you give us x thousands of dollars we'll do this for you too. So what is it that you most wish could be changed when it comes to alleviating human suffering caused by disease which was the medical school's mission? And you would hear amazing things from these donors. It's that they, you know, some of them wanted to speed the pace of discovery. Like that's what they were interested in. It actually didn't matter what disease. They just wanted to speed it up. You know, and other folks were really interested in how are we training doctors? And you can already see that if you start to engage somebody on that kind of level, then all of a sudden all there's a much broader basis by which they can interact and in this case give. Um as opposed to when you say, well, we had this one specific thing, then you limit the conversation to that one specific thing and ultimately limit what the relationship can be over time. Yeah. No, I, wow. I mean, that, that all was fantastic. I'm still, and, and while you're saying all that, I'm trying to remember, cause the very first thing you said caught my, <laughs> caught my attention at the Boston Conservatory about a, just a, they had a different way of looking at the world. And I, I, I think mm. that comes up again and again in, um, in good branding is being open to one, how, uh, and somewhat in the case of Harvard, there having your donors look at the world differently about what their money could do. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It was also starting to, it, it was, it was work that really fought against the, the engine of how fundraising has always been done, but when it was successful, it was really successful. Um, but this issue of how an organization sees the world is one that I'm really passionate about, because if you think about brand and, and I think we're at a point where most people understand a brand is more than a logo. It's more than a tagline. It's all of that. It's, you know, one of my favorite definitions of brand is the manifestation of everything that you do. It's, it's, it's the sum total of everyone's interactions with that organization. And if you think about it that way, then it means that it's, it's the action, the action of the brand. It's the action of the organization that produces that brand. And what I'm fascinated by and what I've really spent the last couple of years of my career working on is the realization that most organizations 
don't know why they act the way that they do. They don't actually have a clear view of how they see the world. And so you can see that if you don't understand that, then it's nearly impossible for you to find a brand that is not only truly resonant with the organization, but is resonant with the outside world. Because we've all seen examples of brands where they, they try to create a brand or an organization tries to create a brand that's so at odds with what your own interaction with them. I mean, the easy things are to pick on things like United, you know, fly the friendly skies. No. Um, but that's, I like to use that example because it's so clear to people. And the thing is, you know, Hey, there's nothing wrong with the fact that United, you know, aside from beating up passengers, I mean, that's, that's wrong. I'm, I'm going to just go out there on a limb and say that. Um, but it, you know, there's ultimately nothing wrong with the fact that United clearly exists to satisfy the needs of its shareholders. And the best way it can do that is to satisfy the needs of its highest profit flyers, which are the people who are paying for business at first class. And so, but they can't, you know, there's this feeling of saying, well, we don't want to go out there publicly with that because everybody else has to fly too. Um, and yeah, that does create a challenge. But ultimately, you know, in even in the face of that passenger incident, if you paid attention to who really was bothered by it, it was not the people who regularly flew United. And so you know, my, my, my point is this, is that when you really understand, first and foremost, who you're really for in the marketplace, then it becomes a lot easier for you to have a sense of when you are or are not operating within something that's true to how you see the world. But it really comes down to the fact that most times, either people aren't willing to to admit <laughs> that this, these are their, their, these are the the way you know these are the motivations and the basic beliefs and assumptions that they're dealing with, um, or they just haven't done that work. And as long as they haven't done that work, you know any organization is going to get caught in, you know everything from brand and marketing fails, you know a la Pepsi and you know the Jenner incident. Um, you know, with, with using Kendall Jenner as, you know, the, the face of mock protest, um, but all the way through to organizations that are spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and months and months and months and months on a brand process to develop some kind of graphic identity and positioning statement that ultimately doesn't feel right to the brand. And it's never going to feel right if you don't understand the basic assumptions under which the brand, the organization is actually operating. Yeah. Uh, so many good examples in there. And you've really, you have answered really my next question, which was about, you know, what, what is a brand and why is it important? I feel like, um, we've made that pretty clear. And I love that you brought up airlines and honestly, uh, I think it's not the first time United has come up on this podcast, but I think I took it out the last time, <laughs> but <laughs> You're like, oh gosh, here's United yeah, again. But um, but it, that I think that's going to be relevant. I want to hear what you have to say about this. So we we're going to talk about branding for companies large and small. And my big question is, um, uh, I want to go with the big companies. But my question around small companies is, when they're getting started, how do they even establish it? But for big companies that um, have been around for a while and in our industry, they start buying up all the little companies and pretty soon they all do similar things. I mean, they have a broad range of capabilities that overlap significantly. And what struck me there is, you know what, the airline industry, they all do exactly the same thing. And yet 
there are some pretty significantly different brands among them. Uh, Absolutely. And so maybe and that's I, a I nice would say that's, way yeah. to, um, to uh, frame or whatever this conversation about how companies that do the same thing can stand for different things. And it comes, so I think most of the time what we do when we're trying to figure out how do we differentiate, we end up looking at what we do. Um, and, and, and we can see it both on a marketing standpoint and a sales standpoint that when we focus on what we do and wait and what makes the actual delivery of that different or better, uh, that's when we quickly find ourselves in, you know, a, a race of features and benefits of, of competing on price of those kinds of things. And so what I have found is that if, if you can back up a little bit and say, well, and it goes beyond Simon Sinek's why. It goes back to say, well, yes, why do you develop your products in that way? But most importantly, it's what problem are you ultimately trying to solve with those products and how you solve them that way? And so you can look at airlines and and you can look at something like, you know, whether or not this is true, actually, I don't know. But, you know, you can, again, the, the, the brand to me is the, is the actions. It's the, it's the manifestation of how the company sees the world. Uh, and I actually, I love to use the phrase that the Scandinavians use for, in a similar way, they call it the red thread. It's the through line of an organization, or even in certain cases, the through line of a message or a person or a project. It's the thing that makes things make sense. And I firmly believe that every organization has this red thread and that the brand is a manifestation of that. Now, this red thread that organizations have is a combination of what they do, of course, but why they do it that way for their group of people. And so if you think of, you know, uh, if, if we're going to use the airlines, if you think of United, and I already said, I think they, they, they exist really, the people they're most interested in serving are their shareholders. Like that's, the, the actions would indicate that. So you can see from somebody, from an organization's actions, you can reverse engineer to, well, who are they really for? They're really looking for where can they get the biggest profit, which ultimately is going to satisfy shareholders. Um, and, you know, the, the problem that they're solving for those shareholders is, you know, maximizing profit on every flight that they take. They're looking at minimizing costs and maximizing profit. And so they take into certain accounts that, you know, one of the things they fundamentally believe is as long as we've got this at least you can revert. At least this is what I reverse engineer from their behavior. As long as we keep the our you know our million mile flyers happy, you know that's going to give us enough profit to cover everything else in the churn of everything else. Now contrast that with something like with an airline like JetBlue, which I love, um, and obviously they're out there to satisfy shareholders as, as well. But their actions indicate a different fundamental belief behind solving the problem of maximizing that value. Um, and to me, they, they, they feel like their fundamental belief is if we can get more people to be loyal, not just the high tier people, but if we can get more people to be loyal, then that's actually going to be a better long-term strategy. That seems to be their belief. And so that the way that they serve it is to make sure that everybody, to the extent that they can, like everybody has an equally pleasant experience on JetBlue. It's why they're, you know, other than you know, the long haul flights with Mint, like there's, it's everybody's business class. You know, so I think that's a really 
I'm really fascinated by these the the ways where if you start to look at these baseline assumptions about what problem do they solve for whom and why do they solve it that way, then you start to reveal incredible sources of differentiation between even commodity-like products and commodity-like brands. Because when it comes down to why you do something that way, you start to expose, well, because we're really for these people and these people want this goal. And we see this particular problem in the way of that goal. And all of that together combines to create a completely different worldview company to company. And it's when a company can get that worldview articulated that not only is it stronger internally so that their their internal mechanisms align, strategies, communications, all of that, but it also starts to come through externally. And you can see that in certain brands too. What I One of my favorite things to study is the brands that do very little, the organizations, I should say, that do very little brand advertising at all. You know, so... Uh, you know, there's there's B2C brands, obviously, but things like Birkenstock, very little brand advertising, and yet an enormously <laughs> dedicated following of people. Uh, Lodge Cast Iron Pans is another one I put in that category. <laughs> I'm laughing because I have a, both of those. But, <laughs> but, yeah. Of course you do. Yeah, but but um, you know, Patagonia is one of those very little mm-hmm. brand advertising, and yet there's just incredible consistency. B2C, um, they do a little bit of brand advertising, not much, but 3M. You know, it has, you know, there's, there may be product advertising, but at the brand level, there's not that much. And yet they're really, really consistent. And by the way, I think their tagline is masterfully captures their red thread, which is science applied to life. Um, but my favorite example is to, is to go look at, at the website of Berkshire Hathaway. So go to BerkshireHathaway.com and you will see something that is straight out of 1998. And yet, that's the that is the website you know the, apparently the, you know most people would say the website is this you know it's the it's the anchor of the visual communications of the brand Berkshire Hathaway is the company of the one of the richest men in the United States and they have a website that looks like it's from 1998 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet we're not questioning the brand of Berkshire Hathaway why because the beliefs of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger permeate everything that they do But here's where it's important. It comes back to the question you asked originally about these companies that acquire other companies. The companies that they acquire also have very similar approaches to how they solve problems, approach the approach the the execution of their business, and some consistent beliefs and values. And that's something that comes up uh, even when they do research studies on it. So there's a really fascinating research study that came out from Harvard Business review or uh, Harvard Business School where they interviewed the managers and the, uh, the owners of the companies that the that Berkshire Hathaway acquired and you saw this enormous consistency about how those companies saw the world it's just it's so fascinating if you can just get down to what the worldview is what this through line is what the what the red thread is it's enormously powerful not just for branding but for company strategy as well. Yeah, that's an enormous one because you hear about so many mergers that are not successful because of cultural problems. Um, Absolutely. And And if you start to pull it apart, if you start to pull this red thread apart, you can almost always see exactly why it broke down. So, so for instance, take two companies that – well, I'll take an example of someone who – 
that, that came to me recently where, um, you know, in a communications field, I mean, when PR companies, for instance, are famous for conglomeration, you know, there's these, these massive holding companies of PR firms. And, you know, there's a couple different, ultimately, they're all solving the same problem for their customers, right? They're, they're solving the customers of, of awareness in the marketplace. Um, but the approach that people take is driven by some fundamental beliefs and values. And so take, for instance, let's say there's one company that believes very much that the quality of the connection is more important than anything else. That it actually doesn't matter if you send out 20 gajillion press releases, if they're to the wrong people, right? Um, you know, that, that they believe in quality over quantity. Now, let's say you have another company that has that has gotten really good results from this volume approach. They just play the numbers game where it's just like, yeah, it's, we could do the work, but for us over time, we think it's more valuable to just get stuff out there because even if it doesn't hit, at least we're putting our name in front of people and we're serving a, a larger, you know, we're serving awareness in a different way. If those two companies try to merge, woe betide, <laughs> because that's a fundamental, there's a fundamental division there in how they see the world and why they approach things the way that they do. So even if the mechanisms are the same, press releases, you know, meetings, all the sorts of things, those things, that those two approach those two companies are going to approach them wildly differently because of something that's more upstream than that. And and I know I'm a broken record with this, but that is what we miss. Yeah. And it makes sense that we miss it because it's it's honestly the way I like to describe it. It's like it's like the you know the computer you know, a computer can't see its own code, and that's often what happens with an organization as well. It's either been in business for so long, or it's just done things a certain way, but it's operating off of collective assumptions about how the world works, who they're for, and what's the right way to solve the problems that they see. And unless you pull that piece out, you end up stumbling through, or at the very least, you end up missing an enormous opportunity to have this unparalleled clarity in what you're what you're really about, who you're really for, and why is it that you know even if you you know uh, even if you produce the same piece of scientific equipment functionally as somebody else the the way you approach that's going to be very very different based on those baseline assumptions i yeah so um i love all the whole thing about worldview about how a company views the world and what they stand for and obviously that has to resonate with what the people they're trying to reach stand for or at least be strong enough that people are attracted to that to that view and say yeah I'm, i want to be part of that tribe this is what i want to do i you know, I had intended to talk about, so the red thread, you mentioned that that's really the theme of this talk. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. So um, I've been following you for a little while, but for the first time this week on a conference call, a Scandinavian colleague used the word red yes! thread and I, I know what he's talking yes! about. <laughs> and it's such a visceral, like, I just, I mean, the first time I heard it was with a client. I had a, I was working with Ericsson um, in Stockholm and they said, oh, okay. So what we're really trying to do with this message is we're just trying to, you know, they said, well, what's the red thread of it? And I was like, and I stopped them and I'm like, 
what do you mean by that? I mean, I know contextually what you mean, but what do you actually mean by that? Um, and then they went to explain a little bit more and, you know, they don't really have a process for finding it. They just know it when they see it. And so that set me on this challenge of, can I figure out a process by which you can reveal the red thread of something? And so I did a huge amount of research into, I mean, I, part of my background has already always been paying attention to, you know, the science of persuasion and, and behavioral economics and all of these other things that were necessary for me to do my job uh, in various capacities. Uh, but I also started looking at things like story structure and, um, and screenwriting and playwriting and, and what was it that was consistent about when a, about conveying a message. And what I basically did was just reverse engineer those pieces uh, and then was just so delighted when a, when a study came out of Princeton recently that suggests that we create meaning, we create our worldview um, in a universal way, that when we when we see something like a TV show or whatever, we are all paying attention to the same things. And that our while we may draw different conclusions from those things, we're paying attention to the same things, like character action, motivations. You know, think of it as like what somebody wants, why they want it, and what they'll do as a result. So subconsciously, we're always paying attention to these things. We're trying to find the answers either for ourselves or if somebody else is talking to us, we're looking for that. Like, what do they want? Why do they want it? What are they going to do as a result? Or what have they done as a result? And so really what this is for me, is just a way to help businesses reverse engineer to reveal this pattern that's already present and how they're, how they're going about doing what they do. Well, you've taken me to exactly where I want to go then, because I'm, I'm sitting here, I have, you know, a, a, forgive me if this isn't the right word, sort of a formula that I looked at on your website about the red thread and goals, problems, ideas, and so on that you and I talked about a little bit before. Um, but you mentioned exactly the thing I want to get to is like, what is this process that how does a company find what its red thread is? Do should we talk about this um, sort of template you have, or should we talk about the aspects of it, much like you talk about a, a screenplay, like what do people want? How, mm. What's the best way to, to help our listeners get a, just a taste of how, what it really takes to find this view of the world and our company that will resonate? Sure. Well, the, the, let me quickly talk about what these universal questions are uh, that we all want answers to. And I usually do this through the lens of imagining that you're going to go see a new doctor. Uh, let's say it's me, which should worry you because I'm not a doctor, um, for just a routine physical examination because we want to do that because we want to be healthy. And without examining you at all, I walk in and say, well, so when do you want to schedule surgery? You're going to have some questions, right? Right. And yet, if you think about it, that's the, I would say it's like 80, 90% of marketing and sales messaging is the equivalent of walking in and saying, Hey, so when do you want to schedule surgery? You know, so because that tells me what you want me to do. And, and 
And so a lot of times, you know, in the, in our, all for good reason, but in marketing, so what do we do if somebody resists? We say, we start to give them the features and benefits about, well, (laughs) but it's the best surgery and we develop it like nobody else, or our people are more experienced, or this is the strategy and the approach that we took it, or here are some testimonials from other people who had the surgery. But until I answer one fundamental question, and in fact, it's going to be two, you are still not going to be ready to have that surgery. So as soon as I say, when do you want to schedule surgery? You've got a pretty clear question in your mind is, why do I need surgery? Yeah. And so as it turns out, this is, in fact, the biggest thing that we have to answer for ourselves and for our clients and customers is, why do you need it in the first place? And other people have figured this part out, so don't get me wrong. The whole challenger selling sales methodology is part of this. It's this idea that if you create a problem in somebody's mind or make them aware of a problem, that they're going to be more inclined to find a solution to it. But if anybody's actually done that, then you will discover that that doesn't always work. (laughs) And I'll go back to the doctor's office to show, and here it is. So if I say to you, all right, well, um, this, okay, so you, let's say that, that examination starts, I say, well, you have a spot on your back. When would you like to schedule surgery? You still have questions, right? You yeah. still have questions. So you can show me a problem. You can tell me of a problem. But until you introduce one other thing, and that is a piece of information, and this is what I call the idea, that at answers why I need another piece of information that makes my goal of staying healthy impossible, if it's true, right? And yeah. also makes my ability to ignore the problem impossible, right. then I'm not going to go. And so I have to tell, you know, so I could tell you that it's lint on your back and you're going to say, no, that's not right. Cause I don't have surgery for lint, but I would have, if I told you something like, it looks like it might be precancerous. Now it violates your goal of staying healthy and you can't let that spot continue to exist. And here's why, because there is one thing that happens in our brain that is always true. And that's when two things that we believe to be true contradict each other. One of them always has to go. So the way I like to say it is when two truths fight, one always wins. And so in order to really move people to the thing that drives action is when there is this untenable tension between what you want, what's standing in the way, and what you believe to be true about yourself. And so I say all that because this is how, this is the, 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 the way for an organization to find its own red thread. You know, you can start with the goal. I think it's always easier to start with actually, who are you for? What do they want? What do they value? What do they struggle with? Because that starts to give you a sense of why you as an organization care. And then you say to yourself, what is it that they want that they would readily say they want, that working with us or this product or this service or whatever, that we generally as an organization can help them get. And this is not our goal for them. It's their goal. Do they want to, you know, if, 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 you know, if, if it's a, if it's an organization, for instance, that was serving you know, a department at Harvard Medical School, um, you know, the goal of a researcher at Harvard Medical School would be, for instance, I want the most accurate reading of this particular, uh, this particular part of the body as I, as I possibly could. So they're looking for accuracy. And then now it's your job as an organization to say, well, why do we think 
The real reason is that accuracy is so hard to get. What's the real problem? Now, of course, there's going to be all sorts of things. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's a lot of, you know, what, but ultimately, why do you or as an organization think that goal is so hard to get? Is it because people focus on, let's say, the components of a piece of equipment, but not how they all function together? Is it because uh, people focus on, you know, accuracy is the end goal rather than accuracy all the way through the design and, and development of a product? So the organization is going to have an opinion about why they think that goal is hard to achieve. And that's the problem. So we've got a goal and we've got a problem. And then the organization needs to ask itself, why does that problem bother us so much? What is What do we believe to be true as an organization or what do we know is true because of the research that we've done or the discoveries that we've made that shows us and tells us why it is just impossible for us to let somebody continue to suffer from this accuracy problem in that way? And maybe it's because you believe that, uh, for example, that um, the only true way you know to get accuracy is um, if it's tailored to the needs of the organization that you're serving. If it's tailored to the needs of the end client, you know maybe that's a belief that you have. You could have a different one, but that's going to mean that the way you design and more importantly implement the installation of that product. So this is the change is going to fundamentally be different than somebody else in the marketplace. Because you believe in this case that this needs to be a, an evolving definition of accuracy, right? That of course there's a baseline, but the accuracy needs to be tailored to the needs of the end client, for instance. And now, like magic, you have a truly grounded basis of differentiation, a change that you represent in the marketplace. And so- you know, the, so that those are the four first pieces, the, the, the customer goal, the problem that you see is the real reason that's getting in the way of it. The idea that makes that problem impossible to ignore. And then the change that, that, that idea demands. Like, so if that's true, then this is what we have to make sure happens. And then the actions is how I refer to it generally, but the actions in the context of an organization are, what are the products, services, uh, solutions, the actions that you can help put in place for that change to take effect. So that to me is how an organization can, can find. So you can do it globally, kind of from a market standpoint. So generally, what do people, you know, do, what do the people we serve, what are they trying to get? Why do we think at a high level, what's the big problem that's the big kind of mismatch in worldview that's getting in their way of that? And what do we believe? What's the fundamental belief, assumption, value that drives our companies just obsession with eliminating that problem as we've defined it? And therefore, now how does that explain why we do what we do in the way that we do it? And when you put that piece together at a high level or even just at an individual product sales message level, it's going to make sense. It's going to make sense to you, the audience, but it's also going to make sense uh, to you as an organization. Why? Because everybody's human and everybody needs those answers to those questions in that order because it's right back into the doctor's office. Yeah. So now I'm, of course, my head is spinning and I've been reading a lot about this lately and I'm, I'm just trying to think if I can rephrase it um, for my own understanding. And that is, you know, we 
as as a customer, a customer has something they're trying to achieve. And um, this is kind of in the hero's journey sort of context. And there's a problem that they're trying to overcome. Um, and in this scenario, um, the company is the guide that will help them overcome that problem. And they have, it's their particular worldview and the way they approach this thing that's going to have the magic to, um, and point out to them sort of the reasons why their solution or their approach um, must happen for the person to be successful. Is that, am I getting it? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing that um, companies will make is that they will they will take the surface problem of the customer, the, the problem that the customer thinks they have and let that be okay. But there's actually a reason why you know, no organization is in the business of just like, oh, well, you don't have enough time. Let me just solve that. That like, oh, that's the obvious thing. But there's there's got to be a way that you see time, even if time is the known barrier in the in the way of the of the of the client or customer's goal. There's a reason why the company they look at time in a very specific way. And it's the way they look at it. I mean, you can look at it metaphorically like forest for the trees. Oh, you're looking at the minutes and not how it adds up to a year. Or you can look at it opposite saying, well, you have to see the year in order to understand the value of every minute. There is something for every problem that an organization has a, has a you know, if not unique, then a very distinctive and firm opinion on generally. And sometimes you need to reverse engineer from the actions that you've taken. But what I found is that you know, you get the people who know the organization well, leadership in a, in a room together. If you ask these questions of them, they need a little bit of guidance, but they get to it fast. When you say, "Well, what? Why is why is why is time not actually the real problem there?" and you're like, "Well, it's because they're looking at these pieces and not those pieces." I'm like, ah, okay. And why does that bother you so much? Why why is that such a problem? Why does that make achieving the goal impossible? Well. Because if you don't see how all the pieces come together, you'll never be able to optimize for quality at every stage, for instance. Oh, okay. So what does that mean you need to do? Well, it means that in order to truly save time, we actually have to, you know, if you were to put in a proverb, it's kind of the equivalent of a stitch in time saves nine. We actually have to take just a little bit of extra time as we're putting it together to make sure that it saves time at the end. I mean, just as another quick example. Um, but it really does come down to, figuring out those pieces and where it can get, I think where sometimes people go, well, I'm, you know, do I have it right? Is because it really depends on how are you trying to apply it? Are you trying to apply it for explaining a decision that you already made? Are you trying to use it to explain globally why you tend to operate in a certain way? Are you trying to explain to somebody else what your approach is so they understand and they buy into it? And the answer is, because it's based in how humans make things make sense, it it actually applies to all of those. There's just subtle differences in in how you would frame the answers and put them all together. I like it. I love yeah, the whole aspect of this is how humans think. This That whole thing fascinates me. Um, I could go on and on about that. I also really like the example of time because if you look at it as time, I think people understand time is never the problem. There's something... <laughs> 
that time is being Something spent else. on where exactly uh, like why are that why is time a, why is time a problem and a thing i see a lot when i'm working with individual individual clients on let's say executives on on you know their 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 remarks for an annual conference for instance it's something i end up doing quite a lot and we'll and i'll say okay what's the real problem and you know one that comes up all the time is fear like so when you're talking about individuals a lot of times people are like well it's fear fear's the problem you know so organizations are like oh it's time time and resources are the problem you know or individuals it's fear's the problem but the thing is to get to the actual problem you say well what is either creating the fear or what's creating the loss of time or what's creating the loss of resources or what is the the you know the presence or absence of those things causing to ha- happen as a result so you know let's say it, it is fear let's say fear is a, a a legitimate reason why someone isn't able to achieve a particular goal but it could be that you know they are focusing on the wrong things and therefore that's producing fear so that would be the real problem is what are they focusing on? Or it could be fear is a natural response, but the issue is if they let, you know, not actually choosing what they do next, not seeing what that fear is blinding them to. And you can apply the same thing to time and resources. Like why aren't the resources there? Ultimately, why aren't the resources there? Is it because there's, you know, there's a decentralized approach to how they're being, how those resources are deployed? Um, is that the opinion of the of the of the organization that's trying to figure out this red thread, um, or do they believe it's because um, they're using a centralized model and they think it should be decentralized? Again, just as an example, you know, or legitimately, resources are in fact limited. Now, a real problem could also be: what are those limited resources making them do? Does that mean that they're focusing on the immediate cost and not the total cost of ownership? For in- instance, you know, a real that's a very common real problem that needs to get solved in a lot of organizational red threads is, hey, you're focusing on the, the the cost per item and not the total cost of ownership. And so, you know, that three, that 30 cents piece is actually a $300 piece when you take in what it takes to actually repair it when it breaks. Right. Yeah. That's, I love that. We did an episode on that and uh, that's one of my favorite topics as well. Um, Tamson Webster, this has been, uh, a, I'm going to say it, my cheeks hurt. This is one of those episodes where I'm smiling because <laughs> it's just so much fun to listen to you talk about this. And so I've had a blast doing this and I want to thank I you. Loved, obviously, I hope it's obvious. I love talking about this too. <laughs> I love this stuff. That comes across. Okay. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for sharing some time with us and my listeners. I really appreciate this. So, um, we talked about the red thread. If people want to know, uh, more about what you do, where can they go to find out or get in touch with you? So cent- easiest centralized places go to TamsinWebster.com. So everything's there. There's a, I have a page specific on the red thread. There's a, a blog, a video blog that I do that's also there that can be helpful where I talk about a lot of these little individual pieces and things uh, together there. But uh, TamsinWebster.com is the best place. All right. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And thank you very much. Well, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks so much. You bet. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As I said to Tamson, I'm always interested in how companies distinguish their brands as they grow, particularly by acquisition. And these large companies become more and more alike because they overlap in in so many areas. 
selling features and benefits is a game that's continually escalating. So having a core message that you can stick with about your approach over the long haul is a really attractive idea. Okay, I promised you a few events. The first one is in San Francisco on February 15th and 16th. I'm giving my Life Science Content Marketing Roadmap Seminar in conjunction with TriCon, the Molecular Medicine Conference. So if you or any of your colleagues are going to this event and you want to build a content marketing plan, you can use right away, sign up for this event. This is the same workshop I give to my clients and TriCon and Cambridge Health Tech have invited me to give this seminar to the Marcom people attending this conference. Go to www.triconference.com training dash seminars or uh, go to triconference.com, roll over agenda on the main menu and select training seminars below that. The second event is coming up on March 5th and 6th in San Diego. I'm speaking along with a lot of really smart marketers, many of whom you've heard on this podcast, at the Science Marketing Lab. I'll be talking about using audio content in your marketing. I'm going to show you just how easy that can be, whether you're producing audio content for publication or using it just to create other types of content. Go to sciencemarketinglab.com to learn more about that one. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell two of your colleagues. They'll appreciate it. I will definitely appreciate it. And I hope to get to meet you and have a live face-to-face conversation with you sometime this year. I will talk to you in a couple of weeks.